This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, two Australian ministers touch down in the Pacific in an effort to deepen relations with Pacific neighbours. Meanwhile, Fiji's Prime Minister calls for all hands on deck to address the nation's soaring debt levels as he gets ready to hand down the the national budget. And tributes flow for Fiji's first Deputy PM, Taupa Vakatale, who's been remembered as a symbol for change. She basically broke, or should I say, smashed a lot of glass ceilings and opened up um, so many doors and windows and opportunities. All that and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. But first, in PNG, there are calls for the police and government to do more to catch a gang that's taking teenagers and women hostage, sexually assaulting them and holding them for ransom. It's believed to be the same gang responsible for kidnapping an Australian professor and three PNG women earlier this year. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston reports, and a warning, there are some distressing details in this story. It was just after nightfall earlier this month when a gang of armed men started entering homes in the remote southern highlands village of Walagu, kidnapping women. One of the victims, who we'll call Jane, says she was led to a church where about a dozen others were being held, including girls as young as 12 and a mother with a newborn child. They took us to a house and held us there for one to two hours, around 11 They took us into the jungles. They gave us their bags to carry. They belted us and did all sorts of things. Jane says the men raped them and kept them in the jungle overnight. The next morning, the elders from the village caught up with the kidnappers. The elders said, we will pay you some money and pigs. Let our girls go. But the men said no and they negotiated until the elders went back. It was several days before the ransom was paid and the kidnappers left. The women and girls were taken to another village for medical checks. I am afraid of going back home. Physically, I am here, but my mind is floating elsewhere. I am afraid to go back to the village. Multiple sources have told the ABC this gang is the same group that took Australian professor Bryce Barker and three PNG women he was working with hostage from a village near Walagu. A ransom was paid for their release. A provincial governor has been quoted in local newspapers as saying he believes the failure to capture the gang is only encouraging it. Chairwoman of Advancing PNG Women Leaders Network and advocate Ruth Kassam wants a major law and order response. And now we're facing this terrorism right at our doorstep where women and girls are being raped and, and rape is being weaponized. Pack everything aside, the government should now concentrate on law and order for the next six months or the next year. However, Prime Minister James Marape admits there are few police stationed in the area. They're part of our country. There have been uh, little presence of permanent police. For instance, Como Station's got only two policemen.
that more women from the region are starting to speak out, with one woman, who wants to remain anonymous to protect her safety, telling the ABC that police have to send more officers. I've got big, loud guns. The criminals are armed with powerful guns. They're huge and muscular men who have guns like AK-47, M16 rifles, shotguns, all sorts of weapons. So how will we defend ourselves? The husbands are helpless. The government says extra police have been flown into the region to try to catch the gang. That report from PNG correspondent Tim Swanston and Thekla Gunga there. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Well, Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka is warning people his government's first budget may be painful for some as it looks to tackle the country's huge debt burden. In a State of the Nation address last night, Mr Rambuka said Fiji's public debt, which stands at 85% of GDP, is the highest it's ever been. Ahead of Friday's budget, he said dealing with that debt may require painful sacrifices, but finding for core services like health and education will remain steady. Here's some of what he had to say. My fellow citizens, as your Prime Minister, I plead once again for your understanding. As I have said, the primary objective of the budget is to address the problems and the challenges we face as a nation. It is not our intention, but this budget may bring pain to some of you, some of us, and our families. This is why I humbly request your understanding, our understanding. It is critical and necessary that we must all come together to solve our problems, face the challenges and rebuild our nation. Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka speaking during an address to the nation last night. And to delve into more of the detail, we're joined by our reporter in Suve, Lithe Mavono. Lithe, welcome back to the show. Hi, Liam. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Not a problem. Uh, look, uh, the PM, he certainly didn't mince his words there. It sounded like he was preparing people for a tough budget last night. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely correct. Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka was quite serious and he gave his longest speech yet, 43 minutes if I'm not mistaken, when he gave a State of the Nation address. The messages are very clear. We have freedom, but we also have a mess and there's a lot of work to do and everyone needs to do their part. Just the use of the word pain that will be brought upon the nation, um, I think is, it gives a very clear indication to people as to what they can expect around 10 a.m. tomorrow morning when Professor Biman Prasad lets us know what the budget will be. How much interest from the nation was there in that address last night? Were, were people sort of glued to their TVs? Absolutely. Um, the national budget is a very important day in Fiji. It's, it's definitely a very heavy news day, so you can expect that media teams all over the country will be on hand and have already gone into analysis now. Uh, people are already paying attention, particularly because this government has started to give people an idea, a sneak peek of sorts. We've had several ministers speak to the public at various events, the most important of which, aside from last night's State of the Nation address uh, on the week. Can Professor Biman Prasad spoke quite at length. So people already know. It's almost like a cushioning of mm. the blow that is sure to come tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, usually ahead of the budget, the government provides some indications of, of what to expect. What do we know so far about what's to come? 
We know the the debt burden is very high, quite possibly the highest in the region. We know also that fiscal policies of the government, both past and uh, previous, have not worked. We understand that tax collection has been at an all-time low. So uh, Professor Biman Prasad has spoken at length about how they have worked with private sector, worked with civil society, and worked with the public to just look for ideas. Uh, we know also that there will most uh, uh, probably be an increase in taxes. And like previous uh, policies tend to be, that will most probably be in the value-added tax. So that means the burden will be shifted onto consumers. Uh, we understand from uh, Prime Minister Rumbuka's speech last night that there will also be a lot of uh, work to tighten government expenditure, particularly around infrastructure spending. So we will see a lot of tightening, but we are sure to see an increase in taxes about what everyone will be paying attention to is the initiatives that this government will make to ensure that they can collect taxes better than other governments have done. Yeah, I can remember reading about that public expenditure report earlier in the year, which actually stated I think the GDP was close to 90% back in 2022. One thing he did say that stuck out to me was that no other government had ever faced uh, these circumstances. Um, Do you think that's true? I think back there's been hard times in the past, like the GFC and things like that. True, uh, but um, and, and like Rambuka talks about at length last night, and this is something that is not new for us here. We have heard his predecessor Frank Mbainamarama also talk about it. But the war in Ukraine, mm. the climate crisis, and of course the pandemic and the continued economic impact of that is going to be felt in this part of the region a lot more than people expect it to be, uh, particularly given that we're completely reliant on, um, you know, on, on the global community for our trade and for fuel. And so that has quite a lot of impact. Uh, people know that it's going to be tough times ahead of us. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans and I'm chatting with ABC reporter Lithe Mavono who is on the ground in Fiji ahead of the country's upcoming budget. Now Lithe, you mentioned uh, this a little bit a second ago. What is the the view in the community at the moment? Do you think people understand uh, when when these tough measures will be taken if they've got to pay more taxes or if there's you know a slashing to government services and things like that? Well, look, our poverty rates are at an all-time high, and we've had a crime rate to match that. So in terms of public awareness about where the Fijian economy is, there's definitely a very good understanding of how dire the straits are. In fact, it has, it was one of the election platforms in which this government rode in. So people understand, uh, without having seen the facts over the last 16 years or so, that we're in a difficult situation. Additionally, this government convened a fiscal review committee for the first First time in almost two decades. And that meant an opening of government information, an opening of public finance policy. So people were, were able to see over the last few months that, you know, we are in fact at an all-time high in terms of our debt burden. And um, one of the lines that that, that stick, stays with me when people talked about it is, um, uh, my grandchildren will probably still be paying for the debt incurred mm. in these times. Um, and so there is an understanding, but the real test will be when that tax is increased and the bud- burden is passed on to consumers like it always does and whether or not, you know, the Fijian people, whether or not the community will understand the tough measures are now necessary.
And I guess uh, in terms for the government, uh, adding to the, to the complications, is there, there's been reports of a, a little bit of friction between partners within the coalition ahead of this budget. Has that been apparent at all in, in the preparation? For following the, the disagreement or the discontent over uh, election promises, things had looked quite smooth in terms of the way that Professor Biman Prasad and the National Federation Party, part of the coalition, have put together this budget. We understand that there's been continued dialogue uh, within the three parties in terms of the way this budget has been put together. But in terms of recent um, difficulties within the coalition, the government took care of that in recent times, having announced over the last couple of weeks or so the opening, the reopening rather of the U.S. Embassy and and the now expected appointment of coalition partners to head that embassy as well as the High Commission to the United Kingdom. So, so far, it looks like they're united in delivering what will be a tough blow to Fijians tomorrow. Yeah, one of the other things I read as well is that I think it was the Fiji Village that they reported that uh, the PM had even called on uh, support from the opposition. Uh, do you think he, he's likely uh, to get that or do you expect them to, to use, use the budget as, as a way to score political points? Absolutely. I mean, he, he asked for bipartisan leadership and he's been asking for that from the very beginning. But so far, we've seen the Fiji First Party who make up the opposition do pretty much what these parties who are now in power did when Fiji First was running the show. So there's been a lot of boycotts. There's been a lot of absenteeism. There's been very little interaction on, on the two sides of the house. But I think given all the difficulties uh, that we've seen, given the information that's now come out about the actual state of our economy, uh, people hope that there will be a bipartisan approach to the way we address this debt burden and to the way that we go into what will be a very tough period of time for the people of Fiji. Yeah, that will be interesting to watch. I think uh, people in countries all over the world have hoped for bipartisanship between their, their political leaders sometimes and are often often left disappointed. And last question, Lithe, before we go, what, what about the military? Have we heard um, anything about its budget? Yes, we've heard uh, from the Prime Minister himself has indicated that the military is due to get a substantial increase, which will go directly into increasing the size of the military. And as you know, that is always a sore subject in our history, um, and especially over the last few months when we've seen um, uh, the books open up in government and um, uh, announcements made that military allocations in the last five years alone have totaled almost $500 million. And so uh, coupled with the fact that recent government news reports indicate that the military has not actually made any money from its major business, which is United Nations keep uh, peacekeeping duties abroad over the last three decades. So that is uh, definitely going to be a cause of controversy that is going to um, invite some um, ire from the community as to whether or not this is spending that is actually necessary given the tough times we're about to go through. Yeah, it'd be definitely one to keep an eye on. And as always, we know that you'll be doing that for us, Lithate. Thank you uh, again for, for your wonderful insight and, uh, and, and, and yeah, all, all the best uh, reporting uh, on this issue going forward. Vinaka. That was Lithate Mavono coming to us from the ground uh, in Suva there.
It's Thursday, June 29, and you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's also Friday Eve, and I hope that's got you excited wherever you are, because we have plenty more to come on today's show. We'll check in with two Australian ministers who are abroad, continuing the push to strengthen relations with Pacific Island neighbours. We'll also try and understand the legacy of Fiji's first female Deputy Prime Minister, Taufau Vakatale, who has died at aged 85. It's that time of the morning where we look at what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Liam Fox. Liam, how are you going today? Good morning, Carl. Good. Nearly The week is nearly over. It is. It is. Friday Eve, as I, uh, as I said before. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, always, it's always an exciting day. <laughs> um, I guess uh, first to PNG, where three associates of one of the country's most notorious criminal gangs have been handed lengthy jail sentences for murder. Is that right? That's right. Uh, there was these three men in question were associates of Tommy Baker, perhaps PNG's most notorious criminal. He presided over a reign of terror in uh, Milne Bay province for nearly a decade, doing some really incredibly audacious crimes, uh, shootouts with police, uh, rampages through the streets of uh, Alatau, um, uh, going into hotels, ransacking um, ATM machines, just in- incredible stuff. Now, after a long man, uh, lengthy manhunt, Tommy Baker was actually shot dead by police last year in another shootout. Um, but these three men have uh, now been sentenced after being convicted for one of those uh, rampages through Alatau in which uh, one person was killed on the streets of Alatau. Two others were killed during uh, shootouts with police. Uh, They attacked a police station and and went head-to-head with police. Uh, Three men who were involved in that have now been sentenced to uh, 30 years uh, for murder. Um, They will still... Other charges are still pending, like armed robbery. Um, So... While Tommy Baker is dead, this story uh, keeps on going. Um, it, uh, it's it's ready and waiting for a movie script. The stuff that uh, mm. uh, Tommy Baker and his associates did, and the the manhunt. Uh, police launched a massive manhunt. Went on for six months or something in the jungles around Alatau. Um, yeah, just an incredible story. Yeah, God, it's 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 in it's in yeah, like you said, incredible is probably the right word, but not 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 in the good sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no. Uh, um, on to Fiji now, where the government says gender-based violence is uh, costing the economy hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Yes, particularly interesting given what we've just heard about uh, Fiji's tough economic times and the hard decisions that uh, will have to be made when the budget is handed down tomorrow. Uh, Fiji's uh, former minister for women, children and poverty, uh, Merisani Rakuita, made some comments at a uh, chief of police gender and family harm workshop in Nandi this week, where she said that uh, gender-based violence, violence against women and girls costs Fiji, 300 million Fijian dollars per year. Uh, She says that's the impact of violence, uh, uh, the cost in things like uh, police response, health services, judiciary, counselling and social services and lost uh, productivity. And all of that amounts to 7% of Fiji's GDP. So some pretty alarming figures there and something that... uh, 
authorities will want to be addressing uh, at any time, but particularly uh, in these tough economic times where where every dollar counts. Definitely tough. Probably something to watch within the budget as well to see how much money uh, is allocated or taken away or put to uh, services that, that combat things like gender, gender-based gender violence. Uh, and finally, to Tonga, there's an update to a story we mentioned earlier in the week, uh, a bit of unruly behaviour and spicy language uh, in Parliament. Yeah, we mentioned this on Tuesday. There was uh, a bit of... Uh, uh, unruly behaviour in the parliament while they were uh, the opposition was uh, questioning details of of Tonga's budget and uh, uh, one of the MPs uh, offered to have a fist fight outside uh, another MP and one of the uh, MPs Johnny Tayoni. Uh, allegedly swore in Parliament. Now, there's been a lot of complaints on social media uh, about why he wasn't reprimanded. Uh, According to Keneva Tonga, he was caught on microphone, uh, on the live microphone, on the live uh, web stream, um, uh, swearing. Uh, uh, He has denied this. There's been a bit of an investigation where Parliament and and the Chairman of Parliament have come back saying, no, he did not swear. Keneva Tonga has put up uh, the bit of audio where they say he did swear on their website. Um, People, uh, members of the public have also uh, continued to chime in saying, no, no, he did swear. Um, But at this stage, the Chairman of Parliament uh, is not um, reprimanding Mr Tayoni, though the MP that uh, was uh, offered to have a fistfight outside Parliament, he's been suspended for one day. He got his, his one-day suspension in the end, did he? Oh, well, there you go. There's certainly certainly no shortage of, uh, of fireworks uh, within Tonga Parliament at the moment, that is for sure. Uh, Liam, thank you very much for joining us today on Newswrap. My pleasure. That was Liam Fox joining me there. Well, two Australian ministers are abroad, continuing the push to strengthen relations with Pacific Island neighbours. The Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles is in the Solomon Islands and met with Prime Minister Menaces Sogavare last night. Meanwhile, the Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, is in Palau and met with President Sarangal Whips Jr. Mr Conroy says Australian aid to Palau is focused on improving connectivity for transport and communications. And in that vein, he flew to Palau on the Brisbane to Cora connector flight, which is being funded by the Australian government to help encourage more tourists to visit the country. I did go on the uh, the Brisbane to Plough connector, which the uh, the federal government's uh, supporting financially. This is a really important project. We're supporting the extension of the Air New Guinea flight that flies from Brisbane to Moresby, then go on to Plough, and that, and that's incredibly important. Um, uh, th- this is uh, Plough is a country that needs greater connectivity. Oh, most Pacific Island countries really suffer the challenge of remoteness and the need to improve connectivity in that. That's why we're we're supporting this uh, uh, connection as we're also supporting the North Pacific connector that links in places like Nauru as well. Can you say anything about what you discussed uh, with the president? Has he uh, highlighted any areas they could use more help with at all? Obviously, greater airline connectivity is important. This is... uh, a country that's really economically dependent upon tourism. So more connections means more tourists. And so that was a good conversation and we're already supporting there. Importing, uh, increasing connectivity for data. Uh, so this afternoon I will be uh, 
part of the ribbon cutting ceremony for the plough cable spur two, which is uh, providing a second um, data cable for plough. And that's incredibly important, whether it's just being able to talk to other people or have data dependent businesses. And, and we're really proud to be the biggest investor in that project, which is genuinely trilateral. So we're, we're, we're putting in around uh, US $11 million, but it's also been supported by Japan and the United States. So th- that's been really important. And the other one is Plough's uh, shift to renewable energy. And I'll be touring the uh, Plough Solar Project, where, again, we've invested $22 million out of the $30 million total of that project uh, to, to, to achieve 20% renewable energy in Plough. That's a great project of solar panels and batteries, and it's one that's really important. Back to the uh, the Brisbane Karoo flights. Have you had any feedback as to whether it's resulted any in any increase in tourists from Australia or elsewhere? Well, it, it's early days. There were tourists on the plane, uh, but uh, it, it's only been operating for a few months. And I think it's really important that the message gets out there that it's available. Um, and I know that um, uh, the Palau Tourism Authority is working hard with the Australian. Uh, travel agents, um, the travel tourism sector to really raise awareness of it. Um, and there's great opportunities for that. So it's early days. And once people have confidence that it's a regular flight, that you can come up, spend a week in this beautiful country and then go home uh, for quite competitive rates, I think it'll attract more interest. Now, we've uh, spoken to uh, the president recently, and it, it seems there are two big issues for Palau. One is uh, the issue of Japan's plan to release treated nuclear waste water. Uh, the president recently went to Japan, went to Fukushima, uh, viewed what they were doing there and said he now has uh, trust in, in the plan. What is Australia's position on this? Does it back Japan's plan? Does it have a position at all? Well, our position is like uh, many countries in the region, which is that we're committed to the ongoing protection of the Blue Pacific and we expect that any discharge of treated water by Japan uh, will be fully informed by thorough scientific assessments. And we we obviously have welcomed and strongly support the International Atomic Energy Agency's role, including its establishment of a task force at Japan's request. And I'll note that the IAEA has publicly stated that Japan's approach is technically feasible and is in line with standard international nuclear practice. So I think the really important thing is that there's regular dialogue between Japan and countries in the Pacific. They're doing that. And as I said, they requested a task force from the International Atomic Energy Agency to really support uh, what is occurring. So I think it's really important that everyone just keeps talking and everything is done on a rational scientific basis. The other issue uh, uh, the president has been vocal on is his call for a greater US military presence in his country in light of uh, maritime incursions by Chinese vessels. There was, according to him, a, a Chinese survey vessel there that was directly above their submarine cable. Did he raise that issue with you at all? Well, the, the, the issue you've raised is principally a matter of sovereignty between uh, the government and people of Palau in the United States. But obviously, maritime security is important throughout the Pacific. That's why we've got the uh, Pacific Maritime Security Program, and that's why the election, um, the Labor 
Party took a policy of doubling the aerial maritime surveillance. That's principally aimed at stopping illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, which is a big issue in the Pacific. Um, Pacific nations lose at least $150 million US dollars of revenue each year due to illegal fishing. Um, and so we're very committed to cracking down on that and supporting countries like Palau's efforts to do that. But the, the specifics of what President Whips is talking about is really a matter for him and the United States. Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, talking there to Liam Fox. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I don't think it was wrong that he said that he didn't want to come to the Dragons. Truth is, players have preferences. As a player, if I was asked, you know, the five Super W clubs here in Australia, where I want to go, I know what my first preference is and I also know what my last preference is. Which is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not about to be on rugby.com tomorrow. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, known as a symbol of change for generations of Fijians, the country's first female Deputy Prime Minister, Taufa Vakatale, has died. She was 85. Dubrovka Volodare looks back at her life. Taufa Vakatale was a woman who did not let her gender dictate what she could and couldn't do. For Virisila Buandromo, the former head of the Fiji Women's Rights Movement, she was an inspiration. She basically broke, or should I say, smashed a lot of glass ceilings and opened up um, so many doors and windows and opportunities for Fijians of all ethnicities and, um, and gender. I've always found her uh, a woman of integrity. You know, she was small in stature. However, her presence cast a long and wide shadow in a way that uh, permeated, you know, to everybody. Born in 1938, her life included a lot of firsts. She was the first female principal of a secondary school, the first female education minister and first female deputy prime minister in the 1990s. Miss Buandromo says she was a pioneer in many areas. I've always found her uh, a woman of integrity. She was feisty. She was intellectual. And her willingness to always um, learn was something that I've always admired um, about her. She describes her as a natural-born leader. You look across and see leadership, the kind of leadership that she exemplified, a leadership that was led by values and integrity. Here she is in 2000 talking about her assessment about coup leader George Spite. No, it's not racial. And I don't think it's... um... Yeah, partly. At first, I think it's indigenous rights. Fight for the indigenous rights. She was also the first Fijian woman passing the university entrance exam in New Zealand, and she graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Auckland in the 1960s. Fijian New Zealander Emmeline Pickering Martin is a PhD student at her alma mater, Auckland University. She says Taufa Vakatale paved the way for women like her. It was hugely groundbreaking that a Fijian woman could do these things and could make such big waves from something that many of us can kind of now sort of take for granted. Like we can, our kids and ourselves, we can go to university and do these things. But yeah, being the first, it was like, wow, 
she opened up a pathway and really paved the way for bigger dreams for our women. She says she made a difference to the makeup of the university. Back in the 60s, universities were quite heavily male-dominated and I can imagine it would have been uh, challenging at times being a brown woman overseas in the diaspora trying to get through university during a time where it was highly populated by white males, really. So that in and of itself is quite an achievement and one that we look to today and are just amazed at. Tributes have also flown in from other public figures in Fiji, including Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka, who's quoted by local media as saying she served the nation well. Miss Buandromo hopes she will remain a symbol of change for generations to come. I hope that her life inspires other Fijians and other Pacific Islanders to always live by example and to always stand up for what is right, because I think that at the end of the day, that is what sets you apart. Her funeral will be held later this week. She will leave quite the legacy indeed. That was Vasila Buadromo ending that report by Dubrovka Volodare. Join me, Sosefina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On The Record, coming at you next Tuesday from 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, as Pacific nations look to improve their food security, there's a concerning trend happening underneath the feet of farmers. Yields for many crops are failing as soil health in the region declines. So what's going wrong and what can be done to fix it? To learn more, Matt Brand spoke to Gibson Sasumu, who is based in Fiji and is the program leader for sustainable agriculture within the SPC Land Resources Division. Soils is a really critical natural resource, especially for sm- small island states. Eh? And it's very important to support addressing their food security, food security needs. And, you know, with that priority, food security, there's intense cultiva- cultivation of the, the soil resources in, in countries. So with the intensification of farming, we see soil Fertility, soil health already declining across all the uh, islands, eh? both organic and atoll countries. Right, so as agriculture intensifies, soil health is declining. Declining. And also uh, a lot of factors also affect the soil quality, eh? not only intensification but even the farming practices eh? that uh, are being practiced can also contribute to soil decline. And then we have climate change also affecting the soil resources in countries. We've seen soil uh, quality decline with you know, prolonged drought and then salt water inundation in both atoll and high island, coastal communities, eh? uh, also affecting the soil quality through salinity, and killing, you know, crops that could survive in in saline soils. eh? And heavy rainfall, intense rainfall could also cause soil erosion. eh? And then you'll see rivers 
turning into brown. <laughs> all, all of that beautiful soil at the top getting washed away and out into the sea. Out to the sea. On the intensification of ag in some of these nations, are there any crops that are, you know, increasing their footprint in the Pacific nations? Uh, and what type of crops? Yeah, I think the main cash crops and uh, also some of the food security. So uh, root crops like taro, uh, farming system, again, the production is just continuous throughout the year. Eh? No, uh, Normally they will do the traditional farming system, they'll do like follow period eh? where they leave the land to recover. Uh, but now with the food security needs and the livelihood needs, they're just farming intensively. In Fiji, uh, sugarcane eh? is, is the, one of the main cash crop. And again, it's just farming throughout. But we haven't done much studies around the sugarcane, but it will be interesting to also look at that. And because also, in t- you know, intense application of fertilizer in some of these cash crops and of course vegetables yeah which is which is all new for some of these soils yeah yeah so let's talk about solutions let's bring in james quilty who is from acr so that is the australian center for international agricultural research tell us about some of the soil work james that acr is doing in these nations so Part of the problem in the Pacific is a lack of knowledge and awareness. So the farming systems, as Gibson was mentioning, the farming systems are intensifying in ways that are, are beyond traditional knowledge. So the fallow systems there were, you know, 16 years of fallow between crops. So it was a sort of slash and burn agriculture. And taro was a major root crop. It's a, a major source, source of starch in the, di- in the diet within the Pacific. The taro systems there are now back-to-back taro, continuous monoculture, and they're not putting nutrients in. And it's because the traditional knowledge hasn't been um, updated with, you know, the information requirement that, that, that would support that sort of intensification in a sustainable way. So farmers don't use fertiliser on taro because traditionally they haven't and no one's really come in and said, you know, you should now use fertiliser because you're intensifying. Whereas squash, which is a relatively new crop, um, is fertilised. Watermelon is fertilised. It came with recommendations. So traditional crops tend to be under-fertilised and new crops tend to be over-fertilised, which leads to other forms of soil and environmental degradation. So what's the solution to all this, James? Uh, so there's, it's a good question. I mean, the, the main is to try to build knowledge and capacity within the farming communities. So we, we work with SPC and CSIRO. We, we fund research through those organisations to try to build that knowledge with farmers, with extension agents, we try to inform policy, so we're doing a lot of work on trying to get soil information into policy so that we can actually have policies within the Pacific that will support changes in farming practice um, that will help sustain the soils. And technology, the, you know, the logistics in the Pacific are, are quite unique. Yeah? Small island nations don't have the access to soil information, so trying to find ways that can efficiently provide 
meaningful and reliable information on soils, on nutrient requirements for crops to farmers and extensions agents in ways that can inform their decision making is, is sort of the solution we're aiming for. And are you seeing some wins at this early stage in the project or is the whole story at the moment soil health in decline, yields in decline? The story is, I think, still soil health in decline and and yields in decline, but we are starting to see a real awareness within governments across the Pacific that soil management, the state of the soils, has actually got to be addressed. Um, the, the, The impacts of fertility decline on the Pacific nations really has a huge implication in terms of their food security. Um, COVID demonstrated how isolated they are in terms of the the end of very long value chains for food. Um, So making sure they're they're utilising their resources to produce food to to the greatest extent possible in sustainable ways is is central to a lot of the 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 sort of thinking within the pacific governments now gibson are you feeling optimistic very very much yeah like i mentioned uh, we're very thankful of uh, acr support eh? because i think we need that research to to really find uh, the the key roots of the problems related to soil and also to find the solutions eh, in addressing these soils and and as James mentioned knowledge and information is some of the critical caps eh? and through the project we are, we now have the Pacific Soil Portal and a, a, a database uh, or a portal <laughs> that, that the countries can go to and and, and access the information eh? yep. and then that information can also inform the capacity building uh, needs and, for the con- countries. And I'm speaking to you in Darwin at the Soil Science Australia National Conference. For you Gibson, what have been some of the highlights of a conference like this one? Well, uh, first of all is how organised Soil Science Australia is. Eh? And, and that's something we in the Pacific is also trying to strengthen through this partnership with the ACR, CSIRO, New Zealand, to look at how we can strengthen that partnership eh? amongst uh, the researchers, stakeholders in the region to you know, jointly collaborate on soil-related priorities or needs eh? of the country. So listening to all these presentations is really amazing that we can of course maybe tap into some of these knowledge you know experts based in australia and also new zealand so thanks to james for bringing us in <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for your time on the country hour really appreciate it thank you thank you thank you very much gibson sasumu program leader for sustainable agriculture within the spc land resource Divi- resources division based in Fiji. And that does bring us to the end of Pacific Beat. A quick recap of our top stories. In PNG, there are calls for the police and government to do more to catch a gang that's taking teenagers and women hostage, sexually assaulting them and holding them for ransom. It's believed to be the same gang responsible for kidnapping an Australian professor and three PNG women earlier this year. And Fiji's Prime Minister, Sidovani Rambuka, is warning people his government's first budget may be painful to, painful to some. However, our reporter in Suva, Lithay Mavono, says people are under no illusions about what to expect. 
Well, look, our poverty rates are at an all-time high, and we've had a crime rate to match that. So in terms of public awareness about where the Fijian economy is, there's definitely a very good understanding of how dire the straits are. In fact, it has, it was one of the election platforms in which this government rode in. So people understand, uh, without having seen the facts over the last 16 years or so, that we're in a difficult situation. Additionally, this government convened a fiscal review committee for the first time in almost two decades. And that meant an opening of government information, an opening of public finance policy. So people were, were able to see over the last few months that, you know, we are in fact at an all-time high in terms of our debt burden. And um, one of the lines that that, that stick, stays with me when people talked about it is um, uh, my grandchildren will probably still be paying for the debt incurred mm. in these times. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. My name's Kyle Evans. You can also hear us again at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned because the news is next, followed by Nija Daily. Have a fantastic morning.